honestly, if like if I were to say here's a catchphrase for Texas, it would be it's Republican for now. Like, let's wait and let's see if it actually stays that way. Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Centre here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and in this episode we're venturing to the Lone Star State. And I'm Denise Barron. When you think about Texas, you might be thinking about things like... Texas is a cowboy state. Rugged frontier. It's the largest red state. It's all about size. Everybody just rides around on horses and they wear cowboy hats. Big trucks, big stakes... Big hair. It's just like a big Western here. But those stereotypes aren't the whole story. Today we want to talk about the Texas that you don't know. And you'll hear from all of those people again as they tell us why Texas is poised to become even more important in American politics. Play ball! This season of The Ballpark is part of the U.S. Center's State of the States project. We're putting together a comprehensive online database of facts and figures about the American state, as well as bringing you the latest updates on state politics and policy. For this project, Sarah Scafidi, who you may remember from our Healthcare in Tennessee episode, has been doing deep dives into the state. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Chris. So what has your research dug up about the Lone Star State? Well, Texas is a very large state. It's actually the second most populated of all of the American states, with more than 28 million people. Texas is also a very proud state. Kids in Texas say the Texas anthem alongside the Pledge of Allegiance at the start of their classroom days, and they still celebrate Texas independence. Texas is also the only state to have been its own country, and a plaque commemorating their embassy in London still stands today. Unfortunately, another claim to fame for Texas is that it also has the highest rate of people who don't have health insurance of all of the states. Given that we're talking about state politics here, what's voter turnout like in Texas? Texas has poor voter turnout. It actually ranked 47th out of 51 states, including Washington, D.C., in terms of people turning out to vote in the 2016 elections. Wow, it sounds like Texas is a big and very distinctive state with a lot of stuff that most people wouldn't have known about. I certainly didn't know it was its own country in the 19th century. And even having an embassy in London is interesting as well. Listeners can find details like this and even more on Texas and all the other U.S. states on the U.S. Center's State of the States platform. You can access that by going to thestateofthestates.org. That's thestateofthestates, all one word, .org. So to get things started, let's get a sense of what the state of Texas is like for those who may not have visited there. Think France. Now, people don't normally associate France with Texas. One thinks of itself as refined and the culmination of Western history and culture. The other is a rugged frontier and is a newcomer even by U.S. standards. Didn't become a state until 1845. That's Peter Trubowitz. Peter Trubowitz, director of the U.S. Center at the LSE and professor and head of the International Relations Department here at the LSE. How long did you live in Texas for? I lived there for 25 years um, in Austin, the state capital. My wife and I raised uh, two sons there. We taught at the state's flagship, the University of Texas at Austin, before moving to London and the LSE. But Texas and France have one thing in common. They're just about the same size. And to Texans, it's all about size. 
Texans are proud of many things, their heritage as a once independent state, their cowboy culture, and their size. Everything about Texas is big, or so it seems, from big trucks to big stakes to big hair, like that sported by the former governor of Texas, Ann Richards. And Texas is big physically, economically, and politically. You just have to go to the state's capital, Austin, to get the point. The Texas capital in Austin is 15 feet taller than the U.S. capital in Washington. And that just isn't a coincidence. That was by design. Of course, Texas is not only big, it's also diverse. It has one of the oldest and fastest growing Hispanic populations in the United States. And today, African Americans make up 12% of its population. While still predominantly a white state, demographers predict by 2022, non-white Hispanics and African Americans will outnumber whites in Texas. So a big stereotype is that Texas is, is very independent, as you said, as the most recent uh, state to join the, well, join the union very recently. It was its own country uh, for a little while. How true is this really? How independent is Texas? Well, that's a great question. And like all stereotypes, there's something to it. I mean, Texans are fiercely prideful and have a streak of independence that manifests itself in all kinds of ways from being the only state in the Union, in the United States, that has its own Pledge of Allegiance that is mandatory in public schools to its long history of populism and anti-Washington and anti-Eastern sentiment. Of course, Texas shares many things with the rest of the country. It's becoming increasingly urbanized, more and more demographically diverse, and less and less culturally distinct. But these are secular trends that leave plenty of room for Texans to stress their differences with the rest of the country, and they do. The culture of Texas plays a crucial role in the state's politics. Texas isn't the static state we often see it portrayed as. It's been changing in the face of demographic shifts and urbanization, and this in turn helps to influence the national political conversation. Well, Texas is the second largest state in America. It's the largest red state. It is the fastest growing state, both in terms of population and in economy. And 10% of all the school children in America right now are Texans. That's Lawrence Wright. Lawrence Wright, The New Yorker magazine. I spoke to Lawrence Wright earlier this year when he stopped by at the LSE to promote his new book, which was for us the very appropriately titled God Save Texas. The state is supposed to double in population by the year 2050, at which time it will be about the size of California and New York combined. So the future really is Texas, like it or not. Could you give us sort of a, a very potted description of the state, sort of the, the population? Just for So Britain, for example, has 60 million people and, uh, and sort of the size and, and the, the landscape of Texas. Well, Texas has 29 million people. So it's about half the size of, of Britain. A friend of mine observed that Texas is where everything peters out. The South, American South, comes to an end in East Texas. Mexico comes to an end in South Texas. The American West, the Rocky Mountain West comes to an end in West Texas, and the Great Plains end in North Texas. And in the middle of the state is, you know, uh, Central Texas, a, kind of a German-Czech uh, origin. And, you know, all of these are very different entities. 
when Texas came into the Union, it was permitted the possibility of splitting into five different states. But for whatever reason, despite all the differences, we've never chosen to exercise that option. And you talked a bit about the the urban population and the the rural population. So, like many U.S. states, there's a, there seems to be a big ideological split in Texas between those populations. Can you maybe talk a bit about those divisions and how they influence the state's politics, as well as how Texas actually influences the the national stage? Well, Texas has very conservative elected representatives, but they're far more conservative than the population actually is. Texas is a majority-minority state. There are only a few states that are like that, California being one. And we have, like California, about 40% of our population is Hispanic. The population is far more progressive than our elected representatives, but people tend not to vote. And Texas is always at the bottom, the very bottom, or right next to it in terms of voter turnout. And I've thought a lot about this. You know, we have, you know, 19 million registered voters, but in the presidential election, only 9 million of them went to vote. Now, okay, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were the two most unpopular candidates in the history of American politics. So there was that. There wasn't a compelling reason to go out. But people took the trouble to register. And then they did not take the trouble to vote. And in my opinion, it reflects the absence of appealing candidates, especially to the disenfranchised Hispanic uh, voters in South Texas. If there comes a candidate who electrifies that population, then the politics of Texas will change on a dime. So beyond these sort of demographic and electoral shifts, are there any things that you'll be looking for in terms of policy coming out of Texas over the next five to ten years? Well, you know, in the past, I think Texas was pretty well governed. You know, it was a conservative state, but, you know, there was always an element of lunacy. But, you know, it was kept uh, under control. But the Republican conservative, business-oriented conservatives, have been in power for such a long time. I think that their agenda has been pretty much enacted. And now it's the social conservatives, the extreme wing of the Tea Party, that are in ascendance. And they're bringing forward a number of, I think, dismal uh, bills, uh, you know, like the bathroom bill to try to keep transgender people out of public restrooms. And, you know, the, the sanctuary city law has a, a bill that they passed recently has a show me your papers provision which really stigmatizes 40% of the population. Who's going to be asked to show their papers and prove they're a citizen? It's going to be the Hispanic Texans are. So uh, I think that, you know, the party, the, the Republican Party has alienated itself from a lot of people. And the homophobia that infects that party, I think, is also a mortal blow to its integrity. 2018 is a midterm election in the U.S. So what that means is that all 435 members of the U.S. House of Representatives are up for re-election and one third of the U.S. senators are up for re-election. And usually a midterm election, especially in the first midterm election of the president's first term, usually that election is seen as a referendum on the sitting president. So it should be a referendum on the administration of Donald Trump. But the thing is, this year's elections for the U.S. Senate include the Democrats playing defense on 29 seats and the Republicans playing defense on only nine. So it's a little bit of a different ball game than what we're used to. Please forgive the pun. So one of the most talked about Senate races of the year is taking place in Texas. And I know I get asked about it all the time, even here in London. So Chris, what can you tell us about what's going on there? So if you're not in the States, and I think a lot of our listeners aren't, 
you may not be following the midterms too closely. But what you may have heard, if anything, is about this race in Texas between the Democratic candidate, Beto O'Rourke, and the incumbent Republican, Ted Cruz. Yeah. Even a taxi driver the other day asked me about it. Oh, interesting. So it is it is penetrating in here into the UK as well. Yep. There's a lot to talk about with this race. So first, it is really surprising, especially to people outside of Texas. And that's Heather Evans. My name is Heather Evans, and I am an associate professor of political science at Sam Houston State University. Texas is thought of as being red, period, that we are going to elect Republicans until we die. But that's not what we see in Texas this year. So when you talk to political scientists about competitive races, we often say, well, to have a competitive race, you either have to have an open seat contest where nobody is facing reelection or you have to have a really strong challenger. So in this race, we've got Ted Cruz. Now, Ted Cruz, many people remember him from his 2016 presidential bid. You might even remember him from the 2012 election when he ran in. And it was a very surprising election. People did not think that he was going to win. He ran against David Dewhurst, who was the current lieutenant governor. But he came into politics in 2012, really riding on what you could describe as the Tea Party wave. He got endorsed by Sarah Palin. He had other people who were very conservative members of the Republican Party supporting him. And he wins. He won, actually, in in a landslide election. I think he, he beat his opponent by like 14 points. Once he got in there, right, he then becomes really the spokesperson in the Senate for the Tea Party. He leads what some would refer to as a filibuster in the Senate where he talks for 21 hours about the Affordable Care Act and a budget bill. And he he actually read, you might remember this, he read Dr. Seuss' Green Eggs and Ham on the floor of the Senate. Do you like Green Eggs and Ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I forgot about this. That was his sort of big move onto the national stage, wasn't it? It was. And so when he did that, he was very popular in conservative circles anyways, but this made him even more popular. So he, he started to be recognized for that, and then he decided to toss his hat in the ring. Because conservatives loved Ted Cruz. So he tosses his hat in the ring. And then you see him running against Trump. And he was probably the person who came the closest to winning that nomination other than Trump. Because he stayed in that election for quite some time. Now, Trump made fun of his father. He uh, talked about his wife. He referred to Ted Cruz as Lion Ted Cruz. It was not a pleasant experience for Ted Cruz. And eventually he did drop out of the race. So here he is, right? He is our senator, but he's only had one term as senator. So how is it that somebody who is beloved in conservative circles in a state like Texas, which is very red, is facing this challenge now? And it's actually a toss up. So what we see on the other side of the fence is Beto O'Rourke. Now, he goes by Beto. That's not his name. In the same vein that Ted is technically not Ted Cruz's name either. What? Really? Yeah, did you know that? No, I didn't know that. (laughs) Ted Cruz, his name is not Ted. It's Rafael Edward Cruz. So he essentially, he is Cuban descent, but he kind of Americanized his name or, you know, became more English sounding with his name. 
Whereas for Beto, so Beto has been his nickname forever. His name is actually Robert Francis O'Rourke. So when he was born in Texas, his family started to refer to him as Beto. And that name is just stuck. So every time that you hear of the race going on in Texas, you'll hear Ted Cruz versus Beto O'Rourke. Now, Beto, he is a congressman from the El Paso area. He has been serving in the U.S. House now for three terms. And he has a track record in a sense, right? He's been in the House. He can say, hey, I've been doing stuff in Congress. So that makes him a good challenger for Ted Cruz, that alone. But then he's also been raising like a lot of money. And to beat an incumbent, you've got to have cash. And he's been doing it in a way that isn't normal. So instead of taking super PAC money or PAC donations, he's staying away from political action committees. And he's only accepting individual donations. And he is vastly outraising Cruz. There was a report that came out this morning that shows that Cruz raised approximately $12 million dollars in the last quarter of this campaign, Beto hasn't. He's going farther than that, right? It's showing right now, and he has yet to really report his final totals, that he's raised over 17, which means approximately five more million and probably even more than that. Just a quick side note here. Beto's numbers came out after this interview, and he raised $38.1 million in the same quarter that Heather just mentioned here. Beto raised $24 million more than incumbent Ted Cruz, which is basically unheard of. And even for a presidential election, those numbers would be bonkers. The challenger is outraising the incumbent. Yeah, that's insane. And he's doing it without PAC donations. Like, how is this possible? Ted Cruz takes PAC money, right? He does. Yes. So he has lots of organizations supporting his campaign. And honestly, to hear that Ted Cruz has raised $12 million in the last quarter, that is amazing in of itself. If you were in any other race and you heard that the incumbent had raised that much money, you would be impressed. But in this race, the $12 million isn't mattering because Beto is just overwhelming that. He is going further than that. He's smashing that. And... There's this debate as to whether all of those donations are coming in from citizens within the state or from outside the state, because Beto is well-liked nationally now. He actually did, um, he had this segment where he was at a town hall and he talked about football players kneeling during the anthem. Peaceful, nonviolent protests, including taking a knee at a football game to point out that black men, unarmed, Black teenagers unarmed and black children unarmed are being killed at a frightening level right now, including by members of law enforcement without accountability and without justice. And this problem, as grave as it is, is not going to fix itself. And they're frustrated, frankly, with people like me and those in positions of public trust and power who have been unable to resolve this or bring justice for what has been done and to stop it from continuing to happen in this country. And so nonviolently, peacefully, while the eyes of this country are watching these games, they take a knee to bring our attention and our focus to this problem to ensure that we fix it. That is why they are doing it. And I can think of nothing more American than to peacefully stand up or take a knee for your rights anytime. That broadcast went viral 
people started tweeting about this from all over the country, all over the world, saying like, wow, here's this person in Texas who's saying what we all kind of are thinking on this. He's very well spoken. And because of that segment, he's been on various television shows. So people nationally seem to really like this guy. He is well likable. If we look back at in February, there was a poll released where we were trying to figure out, you know, how likable is Ted Cruz? We find about 40 percent of Texans say, well, I like the guy, you know, I, I approve of him. About 40 percent, though, said they disapproved of him. Now, when we looked at Beto, at the time, 40% of Texans didn't know who he was. Like, they had never really heard of him, so they really had no opinion. But at that point, only 14% didn't like him. So those polls, of course, need to be replicated. We need to see what their likability is now. But in terms of the horse race, this is really even. So you've got this Beto O'Rourke. He's a former punk rocker is going to 254 counties all across Texas, stopping in towns that have been traditionally ignored by other political candidates. Ted Cruz isn't going to these places. What I'm seeing from here, and I'm a professor at Sam Houston, he comes to Huntsville the first time. He has a decent number of people come out, but that second time, you can't find seats. So his popularity keeps increasing. He held an event this past weekend in Austin where 55,000 people showed up. And that number is astronomical. That is more people to show up at a rally for a political candidate than even any of them held in 2016 for people like Trump or Clinton. So if you ask, you know, which of these two candidates would you rather have a beer with? Chances are people are going to say, well, I'd rather have a beer with Beto than with Ted Cruz. It's like we have Ted Cruz, he's the incumbent, and he's conservative, and he's Republican, and so that's good for him, because Texas does tend to vote red, but our population is shifting in ways that I think it's possible for Beto to win, if he can turn out Latinos. What areas of the state do people usually forget about when they're talking about trends in Texan politics? So, in terms of just Texas, I think that... One of the things that everyone always thinks about when they think, okay, we're going to go to Texas, they think Texas is a cowboy state, right? That like everybody just rides around on horses and they wear cowboy hats and it's, it's just like a big Western here. I mean, some people think there are cities here, but a lot of people think that it's just kind of like desert land or that we're we're in a big Western movie, which is not the case. I think that people forget how much here that we do see lots of immigration. I mean, yes, in the backs of people's minds, they know that Texas is one of the states where the immigration debate happens. But when you think Texas and you think Republican and you think red, you don't immediately think Texas is a Latino state, right? You think Texas is a white state. It's really not. Right now, I think it's around 40% Latino. So that's one thing that I think people forget about when they think about Texas. In terms of the geography of Texas, the land and so forth, people forget that, you know, depending on what you want to see in Texas, you can. it's so large of a state that if you want to find hills and valleys, you can find that. Or if you want to be more in a Western style setting, you can find that. If you want snow, there are even places in Texas where it snows. Not regularly, but snow does happen. 
And so I think a lot of times with Texas, when people think about the state, they just assume it's all red. But there are pockets of blue and eventually those pockets, forecasters have been saying those pockets are going to turn into kind of a blue wave here that that maybe will produce the state into being a competitive state just overall, that we're going to be a purple state. While the Lone Star State may be on the verge of experiencing a blue wave, it's not clear when or if that will actually happen. So it's becoming something of a common refrain that Texas might be on the verge of uh, turning blue this election or the next. What do you think of this view? Is that credible? It will happen. I don't know when. But, uh, you know, demographically, the state is already blue. That's Lawrence Wright again. Wendy Davis, who was the last gubernatorial candidate, a Democrat, said Texas is not a red state, it's a non-voting blue state. And she's right about that. And, you know, the cities are growing. The cities are blue. The suburbs have been the reddest part of the state. And yet and we have such a massive amount of immigration coming into the to the state, many from different political traditions. And they don't have the alignment with you know, the traditional Republican Party. So they're disaggregating some of the suburban redness. And, you know, the state is always in flux. When I was young, Texas was blue. California was red. The relationship between those two states is quite fascinating. You know, they're the two biggest states. And in um, California, of course, hasn't got a single elected Republican, just as Texas doesn't have any Democrats. But if it happens that a Democrat is elected in Texas and begins to turn the state blue, then the calculus would be very difficult for the Republicans to find a way to the White House. And that's why Texas is such a a battleground state for the Republican Party. Just going back to one of your earlier points that Texas is a blue state that just doesn't vote enough, what's going to get the Democrats out to vote? Candidates that really speak to the problems that Texans face, and especially Hispanic candidates. We just never had that kind of figure. We had one, Tony Sanchez, who uh, was a Hispanic candidate for governor, but he, we certainly would not call him a charismatic figure. And, you know, Hispanics in California tend to vote. And one of my political friends says that's because they were unionized, you know, when Cesar Chavez came along and organized the grape workers. Well, we're a right-to-work state in Texas, and so unions have very little sway in Texas. And that's one thing, but... If you subtract the question of ethnicity, who doesn't vote in Texas are the young, the poor, and the poorly educated. And there are a lot of Hispanics in that category. Heather Evans also talked about what Beto O'Rourke is doing to drive the blue wave in his state. I recently heard someone say something along the lines of, well, maybe all this national popularity and attention isn't actually helping him with Texans who he needs to vote for him. But it sounds like the account that you're giving us is that his popularity on the ground is is growing and growing and growing. It is growing. However, he needs to get Latinos out. And right now he is favored by two to one with Latino voters here, but it's getting them to the polls. So we have like the lowest voter turnout of any state in, in the U.S. And we have, again, a very young population. And our, it looks like by about 2022, Latinos will have be the majority race here. Okay, so whites are no longer going to be in the majority in Texas. But who is it that's voting? 
So he needs to do something to get these people to the polls. Now, last week he did start releasing some ads that are in Spanish and those will help. But it's getting people excited. You know, if you've been outside politics for so long and you feel like you're not represented, you're not going to go vote. So it's the same idea with young people. Young people don't vote because nobody's talking to them. Nobody's, you know, asking them what's up. You know, what do you want to see here? I'm going to work on these issues. If he can make a compelling case, and I think he can, to Latino voters here and they turn up, they, they turn out to vote, he will win. It's a turnout game. It is a turnout game. So it's clear that Texas is on the verge of becoming even more important in American politics than it already is. This is a book about the future of America, and it's in process of being created inside Texas. And, you know, Texas is outstripping every other state, and its influence is already nearly predominant, but it will become the dominant state in America. Within 20 or 30 years, uh, Texas will be at the center of everything in America. Texans will vote on November 6th, alongside the rest of the U.S., on November 7th, we'll know whether the blue wave can successfully turn the tide of Texas politics, and U.S. politics as a whole, or if the Lone Star State will remain red for a little while longer. That's all for this episode of The Ballpark. Thanks to Peter Trubowitz, Lawrence Wright, and Heather Evans. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron and Michaela Herman, with contributions from Sarah Scafidi, myself, Chris Gilson, and with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com and give them a listen. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think about the show by emailing us at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. And if you like what you've heard, then leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps the show. It really does. And tell your friends about us. All your friends. All of them. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Next time on The Ballpark, we'll be leaving Texas, heading northeast on the I-55, towards the show-me state, Missouri. Much of what I know about Missouri comes from Mark Twain and Nelly. Nelly? Who's Nelly? A hip-hop artist. Nelly? Okay, not Nelly Furtado. No, 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 okay, no, no. no. She's not Midwestern. Now. Okay, yeah. I'm showing my age. I know very little of Missouri, which is why I'm really looking forward to the next episode. There we go. <laughs> <laughs>